Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey friends, welcome to the Tennis and Bigos podcast. I am not muted. For some reason, I thought it was, but cool. I'm not. <laughs> and uh, we're back. We're the three of us again. It almost sounds like a like a special event when this happens, but it shouldn't. Like we're always talking about tennis on Twitter. It's just sometimes that our schedules don't really match, but let's try and we will try and get them to match as much as possible. Um, I was checking the Spotify. Um, is it wrapped? Wrapped? And I, I think we did pretty well this year, guys. So I guess they... Yeah, what a year we've had. I mean, so many listen, listeners from many different countries. You know, we appreciate all the support a lot. And it's it's just been nice to see this this podcast grow. We've made a lot of new followers and friends on Twitter and, you know, couldn't have done it without the two of you. So I'm really glad to be on this team and excited for this podcast with the three of us. Yeah, me too. I mean, first of all, thanks to both of you for bringing me on at the end of last year, because this year of podcasts has been amazing. Um, I've gotten to talk about stuff with so much freedom, had a few conversations I didn't think I would ever get the chance to have on this podcast. Um, and it's been a lot of fun. So looking forward to doing it all again in 2022. Yeah, excited for a bit of an off season. Just, well, for me, especially because I work with tennis. So I'm just kind of like double, double involved in this. So it's nice to have like my eyes off of this for, for a little bit, but it's, of course, I'm definitely going to be super excited when uh, the Australian open comes up next year again. And uh, yeah, uh, exciting projects coming up. Like uh, we can start, I guess, with that and uh, like, Owen, why don't you uh, talk a little bit about your new, new thing? <laughs> sure. Thanks. Um, so uh, Scott Barclay from the Murray Musings podcast and I um, have started a new tennis site. It's called Popcorn Tennis. And basically what we're going to try to do is feature a ton of really diverse tennis work. Uh, it's, we're going to try to make it completely opposite from the stuff you see on the major tennis news sites that kind of summarize matches without putting a lot of opinions in there. And, um, and we're going to try to feature as many different writers as we can. So if there's anything you want to write about and you don't have a place to publish it, let us know. We will happily publish it. Our goal is daily tennis content right now. Not sure how long that's going to last, but we've we've got done for two or three days so far, so it's a good start. But um, yeah, we're really excited for this for, for this project. So you can you can see the site at popcorntennis.com, and you can follow us on Twitter at popcorn underscore tennis one, because the username popcorn tennis has been taken by an account that hasn't been active since 2014. But anyway, that that's where you can see the work, and um, and I'll give more updates as the project progresses. Cool. Um, yeah, I'm, my story is coming up soon. Uh, Vanch is also writing for it. Uh, um, I'm also going to see just how much I can contribute. Like I hope to, I'm actually, I like, I like the challenge of like having to write, um, I think it's the cadence is, is pretty solid. It's like a little bit over a week and a half. So, uh, yeah, it's going to be fun. Um, I've written a couple of things. I, I always think it's fun. It's just like, sometimes I feel just, I don't have much of motivation, but like now I feel like I will have a good a good reason to be writing constantly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I get writer's block all the time, but, um, with the site, we're trying to say, um, nothing tennis related is off limits. So we're, we're hoping to have some pretty crazy pieces up there, but yeah, the first series we're doing is all of our writers are writing a story about how, um, how they became a tennis fan. Um, and that's going to be really cool because you can read all these different stories and inspirations. Um, the first two pieces are already up, so we're excited for that as well. I think the diversity and the content is going to be fascinating to yeah. read and just see what a lot, a lot of the people come up with because some of these are great writers and they've got great tennis minds and just you know great people in general. So I think it's going to be a it's going to be really interesting to follow and like really happy to contribute to it. Yeah, we we really appreciate it, um, and we're so excited to see what you guys come up with. And um, yeah, I, I mean just um, just the day before yesterday, Scott and I collaborated on an article that was. 
um, kind of explaining why the um, the statement that ATP put out on Peng Shui was really disappointing. Um, so we can use that to segue into um, like where where we are with Peng Shui right now. Um, and the first of all, the WTA's response was um, fantastic. Um, I thought Steve Simon fo completely followed through on on what he was saying, prioritizing a player's safety over profit by suspending all WTA events in China. It's, I, I mean, it was completely great to see. What did you guys think? Yeah, I totally agree. It was like one of the best moves of morality over profit that I've ever seen. Uh, and especially, I think it's it's one thing to say you're going to do it. And then it's another thing to actually execute when the pressure is there and when, the, you know, when, when you have to deliver. And it was, it was quite a really well-worded statement. I think it put together a lot of different, um, a lot of different things talking about how they really have to, prioritize um this this action over over anything else and like it was just it was just great to see because i think the pressure really built after a lot of the players were supporting that decision and a lot of wta players spoke out about it and it was just sort of a really nice uh really nice uh, support for this decision and then you know when you look at the atp um they obviously also have um some stake in china and uh, you know, there's, there's loss for them as well. And a lot of other organizations as well, but they've all sort of just, just caved under the pressure. And so it's really nice to see the WTA kind of step up and um, take this initiative because I think it's, it's really commendable and really the ATP statement and the ITF statement, I think it was just, I think I tweeted at some point, it was like, you know, it, it almost felt like they just, they were just, they had to do a statement. So it's kind of like, you know, they didn't really care that much but they were just going to write something because, you know, they're under pressure to do it. And yeah, it's, it's a different, difficult position to be in. And that's why I admire the WTA's stance a lot. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to be saying too much about this, but like, of course it's, I, th I find it's absolutely um, commendable that um, the WTA has positioned themselves in a way that, it's definitely putting themselves like in, in a lot of risk for the future. Um, so it's, it's good to see that they're, they're saying something and, and they're doing it. It's just a little bit like, um, in a very terrible metaphor in a way, but like, a, it's like when, when you have your parents and they're saying that they're going to ground the children if they do something wrong, but they just keep threatening, but they don't do it. The kids are going to do it again and they're just going to grow like rebellious right and i feel like the wta they just they send like what like three statements total before um just totally suspending the tournaments in china yeah i think um, there have been three or four yeah so yeah i feel like it's it's very very interesting it's very i was almost taken aback by it because at this point in, in life you just almost expect things to just end in in just kind of like a more diplomatic way um, or just kind of like getting swept under the rug. And I was half, uh, half expecting it. But now that they just did it, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is this is something. This is big. Like, uh, I'll definitely be watching like what happens in the future. Because, um, you know, maybe big changes are going to come up like for the WTA and maybe in sports in a way. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, I think um, we could see how the ATP was prioritizing profit, like in their most recent statement, not only did they not say they weren't going to compete in China. I don't think they mentioned the word China in their entire statement. Yeah, they didn't. Um, there's a, there's a Chinese management group, um, like Shanghai just sports management or something um, that's affiliated with the Chinese state. That's a 10% shareholder of the ATP and you know, the ATP wants their money. Um, it's not surprising. Like all, all sports organizations want their money. Um, politicians you know but um th this is why it's so refreshing to see the wta take the stance like they are willing to take a loss to be moral and ethical and it's so nice to see and you really don't see it a lot in modern society you know it's it's not surprising anymore when a corporation um does something immoral to get a profit so yeah, yeah. um absolutely hats off to the to the wta um not impressed with the ATP, the ITF, the, the IOC, who put out similarly benign statements that didn't really say anything. Um, the IOC yeah. statement is concerning me, actually, because, you know, obviously the main thing is we don't, we still don't know. Um, Peng Shui is not able to speak freely to the WTA, and uh, and also the IOC's involvement in this is a little bit 
uh, sketchy because they definitely have, the IOC's president definitely has a business relationship with uh, the man Peng Shui accused of the domestic um, uh, incident. And so I think uh, that is the worrying part. But yeah, go ahead. I think you were going to say something else. Oh, yeah. I was just going to say, um, I mean, the IOC, like, um, I mean, Ben Rothenberg has really been teeing off on them on Twitter, which I appreciate. They um, supposedly had a couple of voice calls with Peng Shui that we haven't been able to see. We've seen a photo from the voice call. We haven't actually seen the video. But yeah, from the tone of their statements, it really seems like they're trying to avoid having athletes boycott the 2022 Olympics in Beijing, rather than actually trying to account for the safety of Peng Shui or speak out and say, you know, what China is doing, suppressing these domestic abuse allegations is completely wrong and the world will not stand for it. Um, I, I think similarly to how the ACP didn't even mention China in their statement, the IOC didn't mention the domestic abuse allegations against yeah. Zhang Gaoli at all. Um, I mean, and he's, and the thing that gets me is he's not even a current government official. He's a, he's a former vice premier of the Chinese Communist Party. And China is still taking all these crazy actions to bury any trace of the allegations against him. And yeah, a lot of sports organizations are kind of falling right in line with that, but not the WCA. And I think we're really lucky to have the WCA. I mean, you have to, the, the business aspect of the IOC, I guess, is the worst of all of them because they essentially only have two events. The, the summer olympics and the winter olympics the winter olympics are next year right mm-hmm. all right and uh if if they if they lose it like it's it's already billions of dollars that are lost every olympics so like if that doesn't happen it's i feel like it's, it could almost jeopardize like the actual summer olympics like but i mean in a sense of course like human life come, comes first but like <laughs> It's so, it it is a very complicated uh, thing to do. Um, So it's not like I'm just saying that like, oh yeah, they're right in this. I'm just thinking, my gosh, it's such a difficult um, thing to be a leader in the IOC right now. It must be just very ridiculously hard and a lot of pressure. So like you can look at like, is my future? Or like, if you like looking not necessarily at the president or anything, but like somebody a little bit below them who is not necessarily in the media as much, I I would imagine like probably a few people must have quit because I wouldn't be able to, I probably wouldn't be able to stand for that. I would say like, so yeah, I would imagine some people would have like quietly just quit uh, the IOC as well. Um, so yeah, who knows? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to imagine that no one would have quit. Like you said, it's a horrible situation. I mean, obviously, the ethical thing to do is to prioritize human lives over profit. But like you said, Andre, a lot of money is at stake. Humans are flawed. And like we were saying before, everyone yeah. everyone wants to make money. Everyone wants profit. And so while while it's disappointing what the IOC are doing, it's in no way surprising. Um, yeah. It's very... It's very human of them. Um, and and again, it is disappointing because it would be fantastic if Peng Shui's safety and ability to be free were, the, uh, were everyone's first priority. But unfortunately, that's just not how things are working. So all, all we can do really is you know ampl- amplify the story, put pressure on these organizations that don't have their priorities in ethical order and just hope for the best. Yeah. All right. So I guess uh, we can move on to like a more uh, jolly note since it's the holidays coming up. <laughs> um, I was in Madrid for the Davis Cup. I was following Team Canada. Um, it was a fantastic experience. I was not tweeting much or at all, I guess, during, those, during that time, just because it's incredibly busy times. And um, yeah, I just wanted to share a little bit um, about this experience with um the guys at the podcast and uh, with the listeners as well. So I guess uh, not much that we can do, but I guess the, the one segue that we would have is the fact that the ITF is the owner of the Davis cup, but also the Davis cup, it's its own thing. And there's a lot of weird um, broadcasting and content sharing uh, that makes it very difficult for people to watch a tournament that has already suffered a lot of transformation. And yeah, I guess that's my little spiel about the Davis Cup. And 
don't get me wrong. I guess, I guess the one thing that I want to start with, like now that we're here, is the fact that while the format has changed, you can still see that the Davis Cup is something different. It's special. Like it's, it is still amazing to be there and like to experience the teams doing that. So if the Davis Cup dies, it will be such a massive loss to our sport, honestly. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I guess my first question is, um, everyone knows that the Davis Cup is loud. The fans get very into oh, it, yeah. uh, country pride. But what more can you tell us from actually being there? Like, what? how loud is it? How special is the atmosphere? It's... Uh... If you have a player like that you really love, this is essentially like how how it, it, it becomes like in the Davis Cup, this is essentially how you feel. You feel really bad when your team loses and you feel really good when they win. So like you you're you're so invested in it, like and it becomes a uh, rivalry with the entire stadium. Like there's team whatever countries of there and like team us here, and it's just they're cheering loud for their team and your job is to cheer louder. <laughs> so it's like, it's, it's, it's a really big atmosphere. It's like, you can definitely like, it definitely becomes something a little bit more. Um, how can I put this? It becomes more like a, a, like a competition, like in a, in a very, in a very binary way, like a hot, like two hockey teams going against each other have like, the fans of this team and the fans of the other team. And like the whole stadium is essentially on that same dynamic. Like, I feel like the Davis cup is pretty much this, like you have a team that is very um, cheering, cheering very loudly for one player and the other team that is cheering very loudly for the other, for this one player here. So I guess the, the atmosphere just becomes like less of an entertainment one and more like an actual, like everyone is participating almost actively in this, which which is incredible, right? And I guess being in the box with the team was so much more special because like you actually are like walking with them like as they practice. And uh, I wasn't um, I wasn't partaking in their actual strategy. And even if I were, I was not going to be disclosing that anyways. But like it, I was definitely much closer to them and it definitely felt like we were a team and we were trying to work together to like get this win. And in tennis, I think this is so rare. <laughs> Like, especially like as an outsider, right? So like, um, even if I am at, with Tennis Canada, I'm not like going with Felix and with Dennis around the globe, right? I'm not like there and like actually helping them doing this. I'm just mostly cheering for them from home, but the Davis Cup is different. And I think it's the loudness of it. It's not just like US Open loud, it's loud for a reason. <laughs> it's like, you're not just like there to like witness something big, right? You're not there just to witness like a good match of tennis. You were there to like witness your player win. And it's probably one of the one situations that where I guess like a six love, six love result in my favor would be amazing. <laughs> like I was just like, yes. <laughs> but yeah. So what did you, you know, you know, the Davis Cup is fascinating to me because, you know, it has years of history and, you know, we're so many of the historians and especially, you know, a lot of the tennis fans remember all those epic Davis Cup ties, you know, from the 90s or 80s or 2000s. I mean, really all the way until this format was kind of revamped in 2018. And you, where you had like the home and away ties and you had, uh, you know, you had that aspect of it and best of five sets. And, um, and then eventually you had the finals and one location um, where the host country would get to choose the surface and you had all these different things. But now you have sort of this one week format with like six groups and three, three teams in every group. And it's all in this essentially one or two or three neutral venues. Um, so, you know, what was, what was kind of the vibe from the, from the players? Like, did you, did you kind of sense, uh, you know, obviously we had it in 2019 as well, but like, since it's been two years, what was kind of the impression from the players? Are they, do they, are they starting to really get into this format now and they, they're still quite as, as engaged as before or uh, is there some resentment? You know, what's, what was your feel on that? Hmm. Um, I feel like because there's so many teams like walking around, it becomes like a little bit more of like a, like a fun experience for the players in a sense. Like it becomes like less about like just being there and like playing your tie against that one team. Um, I wasn't, I'd never, well, I was never in a in a Davis Cup tie like in the old format, anyways. But so like I can really compare it in that sense. But like I feel like 
players are all uh they're on board with like playing for their countries and the thing is this format is not it's not bad right so like i mean yeah. i really enjoy the fact that for example you have uh, you have it hosted like in europe and there's like multiple different um venues that are hosting uh the country so they they're they're like being played simultaneously it, it gives me a lot of like world cup vibes and that's kind of like how they, they're marketing themselves like the world cup of tennis and it's a long ways from being like an actual like parody with the world cup because the world cup is something that really just people like are looking forward to it and like players are looking forward to it and it's not like the davis cup is not something that players are not looking forward to it it's just because the place in the calendar is so crap that like yeah. you just can't deal with it like at the end of the year you're just so burned out like you're just like oh my gosh i'm gonna have to play another two weeks of a tournament it's like this is a grand slam essentially like you have so much like mental fatigue at the end of like that like i cannot even imagine players now like as they are there i i'm pretty sure like we would just be like tired like mentally tired emotionally tired because it really takes a lot of like emotion emotions from you as well to play for your country that is as i said is super loud so there's a lot of emotions in it the coaches there like everybody's pumping each other out like at the end of the at the end of a tire just it just you have barely anything to give let alone like at the end of like two weeks of like actual playing so like at It's not really I don't think that the format is is to be blamed here. I think the the thing that is mostly to be blamed is just the fact that the calendar can't support it. Like it's it's not sustainable for players to be playing in this format at the end of the year like this, right? So like you've seen like Team Canada lost our two biggest stars. Like we have Felix and Chapel who decided they wanted to play in Stockholm instead of playing in the Davis Cup. But the reason why is just because if they decided to not just skip Stockholm and play uh, the Davis cup is that suppose we're there still like we're in December. So they would be like adding to their calendars another three weeks instead of just one, if they decided to play the Davis cup. So it's, it's considerable if you, if you consider the amount of uh, the, just the, the off season being so short. So yeah, I wouldn't necessarily say that the format is really to blame. It's just like tennis just has a, a general length problem in their calendar, which is hard to solve, by the way. Like, it's really no one really has an answer. It really compromises your off season a lot, and you know, so, you just can't yeah. Focus. yeah, so it, yeah, go on. I, I was gonna say to me, the Davis Cup has started to seem like for the top players something that you really want to win once. Like, you can put everything into it until you win it, and then yeah. after that, it's like, okay, I don't, I don't really care anymore. Um, so for me, because like once you get it once, it, it's amazing and everything. And then you'd turn your attention to the more individual parts of tennis and try to win the big the big tournaments. Um, and so I completely understand when a top player doesn't take part. Um, I mean, I, I think like you guys were saying, the calendar is such a grind. And um, not necessarily, like you were saying, Andre, this would be so emotionally taxing, not, not really physically taxing necessarily. Um, I mean, it's best of three now. But yeah, like when you when you start the next year, you want to be as fresh as possible physically and emotionally for the Australian open. Like you don't want to have a close loss on your mind. Um, mm -hmm. I think having a shattering loss in Davis cup would not be ideal. I mean, in, in Djokovic's case, even though he didn't really do anything wrong and he was carrying his team, that loss in doubles, I'm sure will make him sad. Um, you know, Serbia didn't win Davis cup. And the, I mean, the Australian open is we're what, six weeks out from that now. So, yep. I mean, it's sorry. Yep. Like yeah. around five um, days. Yeah. yeah, and it, it just seems like a very short turnaround. Um, I mean, we've got the ATP Cup before the Australian Open as well. <laughs> so it's just, it's back-to-back -back team tournaments, really. Um, some players are going to be playing those consecutively. Um, and it all just seems like too much. Yeah. I, I honestly, especially after living the Davis Cup, I don't know what to make of the ATP Cup at all anymore. It's just like, before it was already confusing. Now I'm like... Okay, so what's the difference? Like, it, it literally makes no difference now at this point. And, like, it, in the ATP Cup, because it's not the Davis Cup, it feels even more like exhibition than than not. Because if sometimes the Davis Cup can feel like that. The the ATP Cup, it feels even more. Um, and that's why, like, I, I was thinking about it, and I thought, like, well, if the Davis Cup was held, like, every two years instead, like, in this form, and then there's, like, they open up the space, like, 
scratch a few of the 250s and just or like i don't know the 2500 something like that and just toss it in the middle of the calendar like push um push the us open or a wimbledon like two weeks later in the calendar i finished the us open like late october instead of or like early november and just i don't know and it toss like the atp cup is an event that happens so that you can qualify to the davis cup and then there's the other davis cup ties where you can i don't know do whatever something like that so that like it becomes like the road to the davis cup in a sense so like it, yeah. it would it would be a way to keep the format but i don't know it, it would make sense in the format because you just look forward to it and it would be more rare like it would happen every two years instead of just every year so yeah i feel like the format has a lot of potential like it, it really reminds me and especially i guess like because i'm from a soccer nation like a football nation in brazil so like we i'm very familiar with this, the whole group stage thing and then the quarterfinals and then everybody just comes together for like this one event whereas the davis cup is a lot different you play a lot longer um and then like you you keep playing like for example you start the semifinals i think it ha used to happen like pretty much every every other and um, at the end of every grand slam they they had a they had a davis cup yeah. tie or something like that i remember the semis used to yeah. be after the us open yeah and then they uh, played at the, the finals at the end of the year. so it's like a, the, the yeah. draw is actually a year long so yes so this is this is the interesting part of the the Davis Cup that is is no more in a sense. But I don't know. I feel like because of that, it it could be it could have some setbacks because it, you don't you you don't really want to try to make tennis football. You, you want tennis is tennis, right? So like maybe that's one of the reasons why the format doesn't work because there's already too much happening. Whereas like in in football, it's a whole lot different. Like the the landscape and like the tournaments that you play. So. Yeah, I, I do also like the format because I think it, it really gives importance to all the games, you know, like in yeah. round robin play, like every game, every set, it really kind of matters. And it all comes down to the doubles at the end. And that's where that's when it gets kind of exciting. And then I also heard that next year they're going to change and kind of go to four groups of four. Whereas right now they have mm -hmm. like three groups. I mean, they have six groups of three. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and then you have the quarters and then semis and finals. I think next year they're going to try to do like it's you know, four groups of four, and then you have the semis and the finals, which could make it kind of interesting. It could also shorten it a little bit, maybe, who knows. Mm -hmm. But then, and then I'm, you know, I, I was thinking about it as you were saying, like, I'm also kind of confused at what the ATP Cup means now, because I know obviously there's ranking points and there's prize, um, uh, you know, there's prize money, obviously, but like um, just the teams that have one really big star, like they're really having to carry um, in both of these events even more so in the Davis, uh, in the ATP cup, because it's really only one, number one of your country plays number one of the other country. Number two plays number two, at least here, you know, you at least have the captains and they can kind of pick like, okay, who's fit today and who is ready to play. And then kind of then from whoever's ready, we then take the number one and number two. And then, so at least you can match up better against your opponents. Whereas in the ATP cup, that's just not an option, but at the same time, you know, you do have great matches and the, all the more top players are playing mm -hmm. in the ATP cup. And then in the Davis cup, you, you really find out a lot more about the lower ranked players. And you realize like some of these players, they really play above their ranking when it comes down to their country. And, you know, that's been exciting for me to follow. Like, for example, um, you know, for the Croatian team, obviously you have Marin Cilic, but I had not heard of Borna Goyo, you know, prior to the Davis cup. And this is a guy who is ranked outside of the world's top, top 270. I think he's like 279 in the world. And he's now having like big wins against top 70 level players. And he's done it three times in a row. And he's kind of been the guy in Croatian team who's now, uh, who's played a big part in them getting to the final, I guess now. So it's, it's kind of fun mm -hmm. to watch like lower ranked players. How did, how did, what did you make of like the, the overall level? Like the quality of tennis must've still been pretty high, right? The quality of tennis was fantastic. Like mostly all the time. Like you, and when you check it out up close, and like when players have something to play that is different. Like and as you said, like every match counts. Um, you can kind of go all out in the sense, like you can, you, you just kind of feel backed up by your teammates. Not only because you have your teammates on the bench, but because you know that you can still win even if you lose. So like you obviously want to give it your all so that you don't lose any matches, right? But um, I don't know. The tennis quality was fantastically high, honestly. Like 
when I was watching Schnur Kokushkin, that was a fantastic match. Because I know um, Braden's level is at least like top 100. Like his ceiling is top 100. He's been there. He's unfortunately has fallen below top 200 at this point. Kokushkin, I think, is below top 100, but he's, I think, is um, still kind of uh, 130 something maybe in the world. Um, and it was a fantastic match. We know that Kukushkin is not is is not like a player that has never like done anything. His um, he's played fantastically well in the past. I think his highest ranking is like number thirty nine or thirty four. I think. Um, yeah. So you know he's he's got a pretty good level. Um, his backhand is flat. I have never seen something like that. Honestly, like just a side note, I have never seen somebody hit a backhand as flat as Mikhail Kukushkin. It, it literally, sometimes you feel like it's just going to spin backwards as, as flat as it is. And he still makes it just drop right on the lines all the time. Fantastic player, fantastic match. So yeah, the, the matches were insane. Like I cannot even imagine like how you would have been if we had like, um, like a Felix playing whatever, Carino Busta from Spain. Like I feel like this match would have had one of the highest levels like I, I could ever imagine on a tennis court like you would be and it's different also than uh, you obviously have the pressure um but it's definitely different than i think you can conjure up um less uh tight performances on the davis cup than in, in uh say for example if uh, two, two of those players reach the the u.s open quarterfinal because you're going to be tight right you lose this match you're out and it's i don't know you're there you're alone right and in the davis cup i just feel like because of your coach being there and like how the format is like you just the players just feel like they they get to loosen up a lot better a lot more and you can see this right like you can see players like pulling out like incredible passing shots that you just be like whoa this like top 20 level you know what i mean and this guy's like ranked 159 <laughs> so it's like you know it's pretty insane like and that's one of the things too right you get to see just how every single one of those players you have to show up to beat them most of the time, right? Because if you don't, like, they, yep. they might be able to just take you out. And that's why you see upsets happening in Grand Slams at times, right? Because, you know, you play bad, the guy shows up and plays a good match, they win, and that's it. Yeah, and one of the most um, interesting parts of team tournaments for me is that, like you were saying, you have to show off. And I think the nature of the team tournament with you know, all your teammates there, a coach there, a stadium full of fans yelling for you. It it makes it easier to show up in a way because mm-hmm. you're not just playing for yourself. You're playing for everyone. And so if there were even a part of you that might tank after going down a set in a break. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Since the fates of other people are resting on your back, you can't really. Like you see Curious sometimes giving more effort in the Labor Cup than he'll give in a major. Um, and I think like this is kind of the reason why, because when you're playing for other people as well, it's like, well, now I have to give my best. Um, and I think, like you were saying, that really contributes to how high the level is and how great the atmosphere is. Um, and just one last thing I want to say on the ATP Cup. I, I think like Vaunt was saying, the quality of the tennis is pretty good. But my issue with that is like it never should have existed in the first place because you had a team tournament in the Davis Cup. You had a team exhibition in the Hotman Cup. Like, why, why, do you need an, why do you need another one? You need one of these tops. And then everyone can play in it and it's going to seem like it matters more. But now it's like with multiple team tournaments, it's like, well, which one do you play? And like, do you play any of them? Um, do any of them matter? Um, does the one with more history matter? And um, so personally, I would say keep the Davis Cup because it has so much more history than the ATP Cup. Um, because even though the quality of the tennis has been good at the ATP Cup, I don't know what to make of it because there's there's no need for it at all. Um, you get rid of it and no one would miss it, I think. Yeah. There used to be a team tournament way back when uh, Dusseldorf Cup or whatever. Like, it was a, like a very minor team team cup. It, was, it used to happen like over a week. Um, yeah. And it was like 
I think it was on Clay, like right before Roland Garros, something like that. It was a it wasn't a weird place in the calendar. I think Janko Tipsarevic played on that once. Uh, it wasn't really high level, like of uh, like players and anything like that. But it just happened. It was interesting to see. I never really know, like knew like exactly what was the point of that, but it was there for some reason. <laughs> Maybe it was like one of the attempts of making a team cup that didn't really work out. Yeah, I guess yeah. like one of the one of the funnest things about the Davis Cup, like of course, like all the behind the scenes and whatnot, um, and. Once you get into the groove of things, I guess, like when when I was just kind of like walking around and just going from place play, place A to place B just to, you know, shoot some content or um, just find some data to some Wi-Fi to like post something. You, you, I ended up crossing a lot of players. So like across Mikhail Emer, like Alexander Bublik, across Robin Soderling as well because team captains were there. Um Saw Karenia Busta on a on a on a like one of those stationary bikes, like just like exercising. A few of the players saw Medvedev, Karatsev, Rublev, with whom I've made eye contact for a little bit. It was weird. He looks very scary. Um, <laughs> and they're just at some points, they're just kind of like having fun, playing soccer, and like just joking with each other and just having lunch. And at 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 some point, it was interesting because it it definitely just felt like. Um, it just kind of it feels like a work environment. <laughs> it's just like oh, this, these guys are just like walking around. It's like everybody's going around their their own business, and I feel like the players really just kind of get to relax a bit, like because everybody's just so much like just just fans of them, and they just want like look at them and pictures and autographs. And like, I feel like for them, it's it's so relaxing just to have like people around them that they're not like that. And when when I lived through this, I feel I felt like. They 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 just felt like normal people to me. It's just like, yeah, whatever. I don't care. <laughs> you know what I mean? Just cross Medvedev and it was like on his phone. Like, yeah, whatever. I got I got stuff to do. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, saw the octopus a bunch of times already. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I mean, um, it, it is kind of crazy because the first time the first time you see players, like, it's so surreal. You're like, oh my god, these are the people who I watch on TV, yeah, yeah. and now they're in front of me. Like when I went went to Newport, I was walking around trying to find the media room, and I passed. Kevin Anderson talking to Todd Martin, who was the um, tournament mm. director. It's like, holy crap, both of these guys have played in major finals. Um, like right next to them. But then after you do it for a little bit, it's just like, oh yeah. Because I, mm. I think for me, the difference is like, you're not playing tennis with them. You're only looking at them and talking to them. And so on that level, that almost makes you equals. Like if you were on a tennis court, yeah. I think for me, it would be that, that holy crap moment um, sustained through the entire thing. But it's kind of interesting to see how that wears off uh, the more time you spend around players. Yeah, it's funny too because, like, as you said, like on the tennis court, they're kings. There, there, there's nothing like I probably wouldn't be. I probably would be able to just like hit with them like for a bit. But like, as soon as they start like warming up, I'm done. Like, there's absolutely no like nothing that I could be able to do, and I obviously cannot run as much as they do because these guys are all fit. But uh, off the court, like my job, like I, I was like taking pictures and doing films and, uh, you know, like I could sense that they respected that. <laughs> and it's just like, oh, they were asking me for pictures and it's like, yeah, it's, it's fun. Like, I mean, in a sense, like, yeah, of course, man, like I'll do, I'll do my best and whatever it is you feel it's, it's in a sense like, oh yeah, like you, you remember that you're also better at them at some stuff, right? Like you're good in some stuff too. So like, that's kind of humbling and also interesting to just kind of like, look at them. It's like, this guys are just people, man. Like just give them some peace. <laughs> they, they don't want to be like followed by people with cameras all the time, like asking for photographs and, and sign balls and anything. Just, they just kind of like want to go and have lunch and talk about like whatever they feel like and just joke around. So like, I mean, like that was a, that was a good experience for me, but yeah. There must have been really good vibes. Like the Russian, the whole Russian team is just filled with yeah. characters. They're hilarious. <laughs> they're, yeah, they're they're really funny too. Like, it, it, obviously, I didn't interact with them, but they were just like having fun with each other, and you could sense that they were just they're just chilling a lot of the time. So yeah, there was a hilarious moment on Twitter um, with the Russian team where. Um, you know, uh, Karatsev was standing facing the camera and Rublev comes up behind him. 
like making this goofy face and starts like whispering in his ear and like shaking his shoulders and like and Karatsa for the first five seconds like he maintains the total stone face and it's only when Rublev starts to leave that he cracks a little bit of a smile and it's yeah. so funny like I yeah. I don't know what it takes to make that guy laugh but we haven't seen it yet yeah oh my gosh one thing that I noticed about Karatsa was that he is monstrously big like as in like everybody was immense like every single player had like incredibly broad shoulders and they were all all above like six foot tall like some of them like six foot even like four or five i think maybe six foot six right so, like this gigantic yeah. person um some of them are deceivingly tall <laughs> um when you check them out on tv they don't look as tall but like when you see them like in real life you're like oh my gosh this guy's like yeah <laughs> so but karatsev he was those calves those calves i feel like they're 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 like his calves are like larger than my thighs it's it's just as as big as that like he is very very fit and big like everybody is massive too like i I saw robin soderling he he's very tall he's very big still even for a retired player um kukushkin just gigantic bublik is very thin he's very very slim as well but like these guys are very tall and like seeing public serve like from a distance like from up close it's he was obviously serving out of his mind against pospisil which sucked for us but like <laughs> um he served 100 percent of first serves in the first set oh my god yeah. he, and he only lost two points on the on his first serve so public public and kazakhstan is interesting to me because it, it seems like they always do well in the davis cup and they always <laughs> at least get to the quarterfinals yeah even though you know they they don't have very many high-ranked players. I mean, Bublik mm. is their highest-ranked player, but like the guy's um, talent level is ridiculous. Like when he's yeah. on. Oh yeah, Bublik is, is is full of trick shots, and that's probably one of the reasons why he doesn't really care as much. But yeah. by the time that he's serving, when he's in contact with his, when he makes contact, and I've seen players serve like up close, but like he seems to serve like to toss the ball a little bit more in front of him than everybody else. So like by the time he makes contact with the ball, he's like almost like halfway through the court. So like it's, it's like it, how can you serve like that? It's it's insane. It's like super intense. Like a serve of two hundred thirty k up close. It's it's lightning. It's lightning. I cannot even understand how people put it back. Yeah. That for me was one of the biggest differences between TV tennis and live tennis. It's like on TV, surf botting is just kind of boring. But when you're in person and someone hits an ace, it's like, oh my God, how did they do that? And you appreciate <laughs> the power and the precision so much more. Yeah. Um, I, I was wondering for you, what player had like the biggest aura? Like, was it, was it like Medvedev, like world number two, recent major <laughs> champion? Was it Soderling, you know, first man to beat Rafa Nadal at Roland Garros? The biggest aura... Um, Medvedev had, had a big aura, but I think it's so chill and like <laughs> whatever that like you know he's just Medvedev. You know what I mean? Like I feel like I feel like Rublev really gives an aura of like you know just because he's so focused all the time and like he as I said he kind of looks scary, but like he he just kind of has this aura of like and he has a little bit of like a swagger too. Like when he he walks, it's kind of like like just his shoulders just kind of have like a little bit of like swag to it. And like, he just, he really just feels like he's not there to like play around. <laughs> yeah. Whereas, you know, the Mavidev plays around a lot <laughs> with plants and whatnot. Yeah. I find Rublev <laughs> yeah. to be just so intense and just so yeah. tunnel vision. And yeah. almost to the point where he looks really exhausted now, you know, when he's playing these matches, he's played like over a hundred matches this whole year. If you look at doubles, mixed doubles, singles, yeah. At this point, he's just walking dead to the finish line. And it's like, he needs that little bit of extra juice just to get him over the line now. And it's, yeah. he's, he's really quite, and he's quite self-deprecating and funny as well. Like I've, I've interviewed him once and I asked him about his grunt and he just did not understand the question, but that was, <laughs> <laughs> but it was funny at least to hear his thoughts. And yeah. it's kind of the way, and I find it really relatable too. Like, you know, when he was talking at the ATP finals about taking a nap at like 6 p.m., and yeah. he's, a, he's a good character yeah he, he's someone who i definitely want to talk to because um in those like atp quiz games when it's like who won the world tour finals for the last how many years or 
how to get out of an escape room immediately. He's like, oh, I don't know. I don't know. And he's like, he doesn't seem to think highly of his own intelligence, but then some things he'll say, and he seems very intelligent. Yeah. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. aside from vaccines, but he seems to have like a, a good awareness. Um, but but I, I agree with you, Vaughn. When you watch him play now, it's like, I think back to that, um, that 43 shot rally he had with Medvedev way back at the Australian Open that he actually won, but after the camera kind of zoomed in on his face, and it looks like it was just completely drained of blood and he had bags under his eyes. Um, and now it just feels like every time he plays, um, I, I get that image in my head. So yeah, here's hoping that guy, that guy gets a nice long break. Yeah, he's not going to get much of a break because he's playing an oh, exhibition no. in mid-December. Oh god! So you can kiss that off-season goodbye. But like, mm-hmm. it's it's so self-defeating. I mean, I know I know there's money at stake, but he would be he'd be better off just trying to make a really good run at the Australian Open if probably he wants to get some prize money. Yeah, I would imagine he's just going to skip everything until the Australian Open. But actually, knowing Rublev, he's probably going to play everything until the Australian Open. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. he just plays a lot, and like. Yeah. Uh, there was one really funny Rublev moment. I think it was um, also during the ATV finals. They asked all the players, like, how do you like to drink your coffee? And they all <laughs> just kind of said, you know, oh, you know, what comes to your mind when you think of coffee? And then his answer was like, in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening. And it was just, <laughs> it was just perfect. It reminded yeah. me of, you remember the, the question Andy Murray was asked, like, how do you eat your, you know, strawberries and cream? And then he's yeah. just like, with my fingers. <laughs> it's just really dry, sarcastic humor. <laughs> I am... Um... Man, Murray is such a good interview. Do you guys remember that time when um, Nishikori said he, when he was a kid, he wanted to be a penguin? And then they're like, Andy, what do you think of that? And he just goes, that's a good answer. Strange, strange, but good. (laughs) And he was so (laughs) serious. Yeah. (laughs) I feel like Murray is the one that the players that like, he definitely needs to be in a commentator's booth afterwards. (laughs) Yeah. Although um, he, the crazy thing with him is he commentated on, the Nadal Del Potro quarterfinal at Wimbledon in 2018, mm-hmm. which was one of the best matches of the year. And, and he did a good job commentating, but after he was, he said, um, you know, I think they need from a broadcaster's perspective, I think they need to switch to best of three because he was getting, um, he was like getting bored or cooped up being in the commentary booth for five hours. <laughs> yeah. I guess like I would imagine it's because it's a lot of work to do. Like it's just kind of commentating at every single point. You can't really just shut up about it. So like change over after change over. Yeah. 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 Imagine radio commentary, you know, where you have to commentate every single flight of the ball. The, oh yeah. You know, I mean, you have to commun- be able to communicate that for the viewer who's watching on TV. It's just or in person. It's just insane. Like yeah, yeah. Just talk yeah. nonstop. Yeah, like if um if what you're saying kind of catches in your throat in the middle of a point, you're, you're screwed. <laughs> horrible. Yeah. This is why, like, when I, I I've been checking out about uh, a lot of challenges lately and two things i want to say about it like most of if they have commentary and some of them actually do so it's just one person um they're just sitting up top in the gymnasium that has like a mezzanine and just sitting there like with a bunch of computers like kind of like whispering to the their microphones and whatnot like a courtside um, commentator and they don't give a crap it's so funny because like they, they actually just kind of chill and chat as if like they're chatting with the viewers and like i was chatting i was, I was chatting i was checking um one of those matches and there's this guy the commentator was like oh yeah just like <laughs> what do you think about this just follow me on twitter and let's let's chat about it and it's like it's like immediately just plugging his twitter and like this, <laughs> on the commentator i thought it was like so funny i was like this is amazing like i'm gonna watch a lot more challenges if like people are just like just going off like that like like no bs just like actually saying what they're thinking like it's like hmm, that was a poor shot <laughs> like things yeah. like that you know what i mean like it, it was really funny and on the topic of coffee uh, do you guys drink coffee at all? I don't. Yeah. I actually don't either. I just, yeah. I, I'm afraid I'll become dependent on it. So I just uh, tip my. You probably would. Um, so in Madrid, and I've been told that this is in Europe, and I've heard about it this before. Like it's not like I'm just totally um, unaware of it. But if you ask for a coffee, they will literally just give you an espresso, <laughs> like the, by default. And it was nearly, very nearly impossible to find coffee like we do in, in Canada, <laughs> which is like the classic, like you get a, like a, like a cup, like a, like a 250 ml of um, coffee. Like in, in there, it's like very nearly impossible. Coffees are always very small. Huh. So yeah, it, it was interesting. It was an interesting experience. Very hard to adapt because when I was 
waking up early and going to bed late. I was just like, I just needed coffee. So, yeah. yeah. The, the culture in Spain is uh, they do everything quite late, right? They eat late, they go to dinner, they go to, they eat dinner really late, they eat lunch late. Is that true? Yeah, the, yeah they, um, they nap as well, I think. Yeah, um, siestas during the, siesta, yeah. the main siesta. thing I know is like they eat dinner really late. I think some hmm. people... Some people don't even have dinner until after midnight, which is crazy. Yeah. Oh, shoot. Yeah, no, yeah. That's a, that's late for me, too. Like, I would say probably 7 p.m. is a good dinner time, but yeah. yeah. Anywhere from 5 to 8 for me works whenever I'm yeah. home. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, no, like, they're just, they're, they're just all drinking and eating all the time. From what I, from what I gathered, like, I uh, went to, like, this one plaza and... People are, bear in mind, it's like nine degrees outside, like six, like six to nine degrees outside. And people are all outside in their like winter jackets, drinking beer (laughs) and like cold beer, like very, very cold beer outside. And and yeah, I don't know. It's just so different from, from Canada. It was great. I loved it. So it was just very different. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Um, now we're kind of rearing the end of the competition, I guess. Yeah, we went on a lot of tangents, but it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, what do you guys think is going to win? The, the yeah, Spain? that's what I was going to say. Is I think now um, Spain is oh yeah, Spain Spain already lost, but uh, Croatia and Serbia they had a they had a good tie today. It was came down to the doubles, unfortunately, at the end, and uh, <laughs> for Djokovic at least, yeah, unfortunately <laughs> so, for Serbia, you know, because like Borna Goyo, you know, he really pulled off a great win in the in the first tie. I mean, first match against uh, Dusan Lajovic. And then Djokovic really had to step up and beat Cilic, which I actually thought was a pretty decent match. You know, like the first set was quite close. It was like an hour long. A bunch of break points Cilic had, but couldn't really convert. And um, that was really the story. And then after that, you kind of felt like this is going to be a one-way second set. And that's kind of how, how it happened. And then yeah. it came down to the doubles when you're playing the number one doubles team in the world, <laughs> Met Kitchen Pavic, and you just, you just knew with... Even with the skills that Djokovic has developed at the net and the, uh, his improvement in, in doubles, I'd say, the last three years, he just knew it was going to be an uphill battle. And then yeah. Croatia was a big favorite. So yeah, yeah, doubles really neutralizes a lot of Djokovic's best skills, like that deep return off the middle, off the huge serve that in singles forces the opponent to hit a half volley and doubles there's someone at the net who can just pick that off if it goes straight down the middle. Yeah. Um, so that, yeah. And, um, and as good as he's become at the net, he's not one of the best volleyers yeah and the guys at the net they're just superhuman like yeah uh, i was uh checking practice for doubles as well and it's just it's essentially just how fast and how hard can you hit at the net player <laughs> and like you have to react to it like it doesn't matter what happened to the last to the there was one of the the drills that they were doing just um frank Densevich, the captain of team canada he just picked up the ball and just like okay so i'm just gonna hit as fast as i can towards you like it doesn't even matter what happened like to the shot that, that happened before. I'm just going to keep hitting and it's, and it just kept going and it's, it, it felt incredibly brutal. Like, but it, it was a lot of fun. And like, when you check those guys, it's, it's almost like they're like lightning speed, like just to open the face of the record, just like to just like put it like in the, so it's, it's yeah, it's hand-eye coordination at its best. Like doubles players are definitely undervalued in our sport. For some people it's easy to understand because the sport doesn't seem as fun on TV, but, it's pretty cool to watch and regardless, especially live. It definitely really helps your team. If you have at least one or two double specialists. Oh yeah. That you can really rely on Serbia just doesn't have that right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially after Zimanić retired. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess it's going to be the same situation tomorrow with Russia as well, because, mm-hmm. um, you know, it could get really interesting against Germany. I feel like they have, they have Struf and they have, Kopfer or Kepfer, however you pronounce that. Um, and it's going to be key for... Uh, the first match is going to be pretty key. Rublev against uh, Kopfer or the other German, Gojovic, I think. Uh, who I don't think will actually play because Gojovic, <laughs> he kind of uh, flopped a little bit against Great Britain, against mm-hmm. Dan Evans. So I don't think the captain will put him in that. But <laughs> but I think if it's Kopfer or Kepfer, he has a, actually quite a decent chance against yeah. Rublev. And then it really comes down to Medvedev and Struff. And they played a couple of times this year on grass and they, they split them, but Medvedev won the important one at Wimbledon in the first round. Um, but that should be that should be kind of interesting. And then they'll come down to the doubles at the, at the end. And they also have a really experienced team. Um, 
like who's who's beaten Djokovic and uh, his partner in the group stages. Mm-hmm. So like, yeah, I think Rosa's best bet is just win the two singles matches. Exactly. Yeah. Like, yeah. like the, the, yeah. they they should, but if it goes to the doubles, then it feels yeah. like Germany has the momentum. Yeah. Right, and then it's probably going to be Rublev and Kratsev in the doubles, probably. most likely, um, unless they put in Hachinov, who hasn't played at all. So yeah, that's Russia is so stacked. I mean, I know Hachinov yeah. hasn't been great in the last couple of years, but they have so many players. If yeah. they could, um, if they could just get a couple doubles specialists, they would be pretty unbeatable. Yeah, yeah, it'd be crazy. I, I feel like my biggest dream for 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 davis cup would actually like have a like a team competition that is joint like a, like a with wta and atp yeah that was yeah. so much fun so much fun you have like I, a mix you know, of doubles missed, yeah yeah that's mixed. why i missed the hopman cup because i feel like it really yeah. it, it was had that pretty much that it was, mm-hmm. it was fun to see like francis tiafo serena williams yeah. taking on roger federer and belinda benchish like that's what you're here for no? yeah. yeah it's like the best of both worlds yeah. that's the funnest thing yeah 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 like, yeah. Um, something I wanted to ask you guys. Um, I mean, this topic has been circulating around tennis Twitter for a while, but is Djokovic going to play the Australian Open? Because I think for, for months, most people have been saying like, yeah, I know we don't have confirmation, but like he's going to show off, just watch. And I honestly don't even know if he knows. He said today, this is from uh, Reem Abulil's Twitter. Um, he said today, I understand you want some answers on where I start the season, how I start it. I'm really, really tired from this season and this whole year, so I just prefer sticking to the family quality time rehab mode. Then let's see what the future brings. You will be informed. I know what you want. I'm not going to give you an answer tonight. I know what you want to ask me, but you will be informed. That's all I can tell you. I cannot give you any date. Obviously, Australia is around the corner, so you will know very soon. Like, I, I genuinely don't know if he's going to play. I think if I had to guess, I would say he would, but I'm not sure. What do you guys think? Yeah, it's just like you. I think like if he if you had to play, I and mean, if I had to put my money on it, I would still say yes, just because I feel like there's so much at stake, you know, and it's he's going for the twenty first major, tenth Australian Open, all of that. But um, you know, and then ATP Cup before that, and then he's gonna he's probably gonna decide soon. And I think he'll let everybody know soon, probably in the next week or two. Yeah. But it's just you know, he's always kept that stance right from the beginning it's like you know it's uh my decision and my my choice and like you know i don't want to reveal that in the public side and i'll just keep it to myself and then i'll just i'll just let you know and it just becomes the the thing about that is that from a pr perspective i think it gets really tough because it's like um you know there's no sort of like because then the journalists just keep on asking it and it's just at this point it's like you know, you might as well just stop asking now because it's like he's going to give the same answer over and over. And he's been asked this many, many times the last few weeks. And I think at this point, it would just be best to like focus on the players that are actually going and pick some mm-hmm. more interest of like, you know, just just like other players and like the event coming up. And it's and we'll just know. I think we'll just we'll just know eventually and it'll just be the suspicion will be will be sorted. And, mm-hmm. you know, it'll be kind of a bummer if he decides not to go. I, I really hope he's I really hope he goes. To be honest, mm. well, yeah, uh, Nadal is going apparently to the Australian Open. Um, yeah, he is. He's not playing ATP Cup though, so he's both good for him. <laughs> That's definitely yeah. smart for him. It's yeah. a good yeah. decision. Um, but yeah, like I mean, I'm not entirely sure like what Djokovic would stand for like in, at this point, like in in his career. Like I really have no idea. I feel like I feel like you're just gonna see him in the draw or not, and just he's probably never gonna say like. I got vaccinated or yeah, or I didn't get vaccinated. Happening. I think he's just gonna show up and it's like, oh he, he got vaccinated. Right. Yeah. Or we're gonna there's gonna some that we're gonna we're gonna see something surface that's gonna be like blatantly horrible saying that like he didn't get vaccinated but he got like preferential oh, <laughs> treatment God. or something like that. I don't think it's gonna happen. I think I just think that he's gonna get vaccinated at some point during the off season and uh, he's probably gonna plan plan that. Although you need um to be double vaxxed, right? Yeah, he might. Yeah. He might as well skip everything again, like the ATP Cup, and just go, just get vaccinated as soon as possible if he plans to, because he's going to need to do this very soon yeah. in order for yeah. the double vaccine status. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah I, if he isn't, yeah, exactly. The, the thing that gets me is he genuinely, like, he might play, but he genuinely seems willing to skip it, like on on the altar of this principle. 
which yeah. is that medical status is a private matter. And when it comes to vaccination, which affects the people around you, it obviously shouldn't be a private matter because yeah. you know, if you like, you would behave differently around a vaccinated person than around an unvaccinated person. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like, if he ends up skipping it because of fatigue, like fine, whatever, that's, that's his choice. And I get that. And that makes sense. But if he skips because he doesn't want the public to know whether or not he's vaccinated, that's just going to be the dumbest thing ever. Like he, it, like if he, um, if he skips and like Nadal ends up winning and getting 21, like Djokovic yeah. deserves every bit of that. So <laughs> like you guys, I hope he plays both because the tournament will be more exciting with him in the draw. And because I don't want him to make an embarrassment out of himself yet again. Yeah. Yeah, I know. And it's, you know, you go back to the point of like freedom of choice is not freedom of consequence. Right. And exactly. so I feel yeah. like you, know, you should definitely like, you know, people want to know whether you're vaccinated or not, just, you know, so they can avoid you and they can take the precautions they need to take just from that perspective. And then also mm-hmm. it's, yeah, the record and stuff. Like if Rafa actually gets, you know, if Rafa is really healthy and he gets a good draw and he's, you know, motivated and he actually wins the Australian Open. And then he's going to the French Open, and then it's now where he's really the big favorite, even though he lost last year. I mean, this year. Mm-hmm. Then all of a sudden, it's like, you know, what an opportunity yeah. missed. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, and, and Djokovic with, you know, the Adrias who were already on his record last year, it's like, you would think he would learn from that um, and be like championing vaccination to everyone so we can get If he's not going to play, I think he will probably use that excuse that you were saying earlier like that he's just had a really long year and he's fatigued yeah. and he probably just used that as as, as the core of it because i mean even daniel medvedev right he always had that same stance yeah of like yeah. you know i don't you know what i put in my body is like a private matter and it's right you know it's i don't want to reveal my medical status and he always compared it to like injuries you know if you get injured then you don't want to let your opponent know that you're hurting because mm. you know i don't know it can it's useful information for them that right. standpoint but i, I just feel but like that's like a competition just, that's not physical health yeah like, I, I just yeah you know, I, that analogy is not apples to apples at one day yeah. so exactly yeah. yeah and i condemn that opinion coming from medvedev as well i'm i go easier on him because he has confirmed that he is going to play the australian Open, yeah. so he is vaccinated but yeah i i don't know it's frustrating um i i really wish a journalist would say to Djokovic, like why are you so insistent on keeping this private when this information could be of use to other people because COVID is a transmissible disease. So why do you think it's a private matter and that it only affects you? I'd like to see his response to that because I don't think there's a good one, but as far as I know, no one's asked him that. It's just frustrating because it's like, there's so many other important things in tennis and in the the sport. It's like, this is taking all the limelight for the last one or two Mm -hmm. months. And it's like, you know, he's on the face of every Australian open newspaper probably and every outlet and, every media source, every TV segment, it's like, he's the face of the Australian Open. And he's, you know, that's like the big question (laughs) that everybody's asking. Yeah. I I mean, his, like, his face could be on the Australian Open because he's won the thing nine times, but because of what he's saying, his face is on the Australian Open because he isn't telling anyone whether he's vaccinated or not. And he really does bring it on himself. It's time after time, really. It's, It's quite frustrating, but... Again, yeah, I guess I just hope he shows up so that we can watch him play and so that he doesn't embarrass himself. That's that's kind of it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I guess on, on that note, um, <laughs> <laughs> be careful still. Um, COVID isn't over yet, um, but hopefully we're going to get to the end of it soon. So, yeah. um, you know, Watch out for the new variant, Omicron. It's yeah. uh, spreading pretty quickly, so... Yeah. Yeah, I heard that's good. not as uh, that this one is not as not as bad in terms of like symptoms, but um, yeah. yeah, I just don't want it to be uh, messing around with us, like locking us down again. So yeah, just yeah, you know, wear a mask, get vaccinated keep, if yeah. you haven't already, get your booster, wash just your keep, hands, uh, yeah. keep yeah. social distancing, just just be cautious, I guess. Uh, and yeah, we'll see you very soon actually as a matter of fact we have some uh, good stuff coming up um with the murray musings podcast so possibly uh, even tomorrow um, i would also exactly. say to our listeners if you guys ever you know have any guests that you really want to hear from or anybody that you want to you, you would like to have us speak with you know 
like feel free to dm us any of us yes we're up for all those suggestions yeah, yeah. um it, or if there are any topics you want us to hit on during an episode let us know it's the off season not a ton happening right now so <laughs> yeah exactly yeah so we've got a lot of freedom as to what we talk about so, so if, yeah yeah, if if you want me to repent for predicting that Medvedev would beat Djokovic in the Australian <laughs> Open final this year, I can do that. If you want us to make predictions, we can do that as well. Um, yeah, just let us know. Yeah, you can uh, always chat us with uh, on Twitter. You can chat with Vansh at Vansh B2K. Owen is at Tennis Nation. I am at Rollenberg Andre. And um, Tennis and Bagels is at Tennis Bagels, I think. Tennis and Bagels, I think. Tennis and Bagels. Okay, right. Um, so yeah, just stay tuned for more and, uh, we will definitely be back with more episodes soon. <laughs> All right. Enjoy the off season guys. Bye. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Are you a reality TV junkie? Do you ever think, dang, I wish I had someone to talk to about all the trash TV that I watch? Well, look no further, garbage lover, because Reality Gaze is a podcast for you. Hello, I'm Maddie. And I'm Poodle, and we're the Reality Gaze. We talk about all your favorite unscripted shows like The Golden Bachelor, Love is Blind, and TLC's big, messy behemoth, 90 Day Fiance. And if you're driving to work, folding laundry, or just pretending to listen to your husband talk about sports, just put on the pod, and you've instantly got two gay besties spilling all the tea and reading these people for filth. So come at us, y'all. Find Reality Gays wherever you listen to podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>